can turn to Luke 19. Luke 19. Have you ever had the experience of a day starting so well, and by the end you wonder, what happened? Maybe it was a birthday party that you planned or that was planned for you, and by the end of it, somebody's in tears and you wondered what could have gone wrong to make it go so badly. Or maybe it was a special dinner that you had planned or somebody had planned for you, you had high hopes for it, and then something awkward happened and ruined the whole evening. Well, in our text today, we find an event, a celebration, and it looks so grand at first. By the end, we're wondering, what happened? Luke 19, look down at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount which is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So, Those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near... Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is God's word for us today. 
Embrace the king who makes peace with God. Embrace the king who makes peace with God. This scene has been called the triumphant entry. I would argue with the way the scene progresses, it's might, it might be more appropriate to call it the tragic entry. What begins with rejoicing and praise ends with weeping and warning. And that surprises us. Probably really surprised the disciples of Jesus. And this event, this scene, is a huge deal because of the reaction of the people to Jesus, but also because of his reaction to the city and what's going on inside of it. But what also makes this scene incredibly important are the Old Testament connections and quotations that are laced all through it. And we don't have time to work through all of them, but we're going to touch on a few as we go through the text today. And the fact that there, that there are so many indicates that this section is a significant moment in Luke's gospel and in the life of Jesus. Three headers for our time. First, see who's coming, verses 28 to 40. Second, don't miss him, verses 41 to 44. And third, he changes everything, verses 45 to 48. First, see who's coming. He's riding. Luke opens this section by telling us where Jesus is and where he's going. He's going up to Jerusalem, verse 28. Well, that shouldn't surprise us because over the last several weeks and even months, Luke has told us again and again, he's headed to Jerusalem. He's headed to Jerusalem. Well, now he's going up to Jerusalem. Why does Luke say that? Well, because as you leave Jericho, you start to ascend the Mount of Olives. And as you crest the ridge of the mount, you can look down and see the city of Jerusalem laid out before you. And he draws near to Bethphage and Bethany. They're probably two little towns that are just nestled on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. It's kind of like saying, you're going up to Cashers. You got to drive up some altitude before you get there. And then you can turn around at places and look back and see where you came from. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. He's ascending. And as he gets close, he sends a couple of his followers to go do a job. And what's the job? Well, as he tells them, we start to get a glimpse of this one who is coming. Who is he? First, he's someone with authority and humility. Authority and humility. I think sometimes, especially if you're really familiar with Scripture, it's easy to just, to just read right through a passage and not be surprised or shocked with some of the details that are there. How does Jesus know so many specific details? He tells these two followers, whoever they are, Go into the town ahead of us, and when you enter, you're going to see a colt. And that colt is going to be tied. And also, that colt has never had anybody sit on it before. And 
I want you to untie it. And as you're untying it, people are going to come up and say, hey, why are you untying the colt? And you're going to say, the Lord has need of it. And apparently that's going to be enough to let you take the colt. I mean, this is kind of like saying you're on a road trip with some friends, a couple of different vehicles caravanning together, and you're trying to get a stop. And so you call ahead to the vehicle who's in the front and you say, hey, pull off on exit 54. When you do, there's a car dealership right off the exit. Pull in there and right at the front door of the dealership, there's a red Honda Accord. The keys are sitting under the car. But when you start to unlock it, the dealer is going to come out and he's going to say, why are you unlocking my car? And you're going to tell him, God needs it. So what's Jesus telling these guys to do? Is he telling them to steal a colt? Steal a car? I mean, what's going on here? Well, I think there's two possibilities. And both of them make really good sense. One, Jesus might have made plans ahead of time. Scripture doesn't tell us everything that Jesus did by any stretch. So it's possible he sent some guys ahead of time to set this whole thing up. But in Luke's narrative, that doesn't really seem to make sense because the driving force of the narrative is that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. So it doesn't seem to make sense that he would go ahead and then come back and then approach Jerusalem again. So what's the second possibility? He's exercising divine knowledge. He just knows in the town of Ahead of you, there's a colt, it's tied, nobody sat on it before. I want you to untie it, and when you do, say the Lord needs it. And that term, the Lord, is the word which is divine master. It's actually the word that the crowd will be shouting, not, not too many verses from now, saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, of God himself. So what is Jesus telling us? through this episode with these two disciples going to get the colt. That he has authority. He owns the colt. He made it. So he can decide what to do with it. And he can work in the minds of the owners to release it for his use. He's in charge. He knows what's going on. And yet, he also comes with humility. Because what kind of animal is he riding on? Not a horse, not an elephant, or a camel, a colt. And this is where we have one of our Old Testament connections because the prophet Zechariah had said centuries before, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Yes, kings sometimes rode on donkeys. This is no war horse. Jesus is not coming as the conquering king to destroy the the enemies of Israel. He's coming as the lowly and humble king. And I think... Because these followers knew their Old Testament prophets. You can just imagine this murmur start to go through the crowd. Wait, he just got on a donkey and we're headed to Jerusalem. So who is he? He's the king. And then they start to shout. And it's no wonder that they make this conclusion. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes riding on a donkey. He's the one with authority and humility. But second, he's also one with power and royalty. Verse 37, what do they say about him? They begin to rejoice and praise God. And they're doing this with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen Jesus do. The works of dynamite. The powerful signs that Jesus has done. And can you imagine being in that crowd as they're following this donkey headed toward Jerusalem? And what are they doing? They start rehearsing all the things they've seen Jesus do. They start talking about the blind who can now see and the lame who can now walk and the lepers that have been healed and the dead that were raised. And they start praising God for all they've seen him do through Jesus. So it's no wonder they pick up the words of Psalm 118, which we've already read this morning, and say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He has great royalty and power. What else do they say in verse 38? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that remind you of anything in Luke? Way back at the very beginning, when the angels announce the birth of the infant Jesus to the shepherds on the hillside, what do they say? Peace on earth with those with whom God is pleased. Peace on earth. They were saying that God's peace had come to the earth because God's Son, the peacemaker, the peace bringer, had come to the earth as a little baby. But now, what's different here? The people in the crowd are saying, peace in heaven. And although that's a joyful shout, there's a little bit of ominous foreboding because they didn't say, peace on earth. Why? Let's keep looking. But when the Pharisees hear Jesus' followers praising God for the wonders that he's done, and when they hear the disciples claiming that he is God's chosen king who's coming into Jerusalem, what do these religious leaders do? They got something to say to Jesus. So they muscle up to his donkey and say, hey, you need to shut up your followers. Because this kind of stuff that they're saying, quoting the Old Testament, that should only be done for the Messiah King when he arrives. And I mean, you're a teacher, but no king. So you need to shut down your disciples. And what does Jesus say? This event is so significant, someone has to shout. And if people don't, the rocks are going to. And I think in that, Jesus might be implying the rocks see more than the Pharisees do. The Pharisees are blind to who Jesus is while the rocks would cry out for their creator king. And he's telling these rulers, these religious leaders, embrace the king who makes peace with God. Don't reject don't oppose. 
So up to this point in the scene, everything's been pretty positive. And it's almost like the crescendo of noise and praise and excitement is building. And then you've got the Pharisees who, has, who, is, who as is so often the case, are a wet blanket. And the whole tone of the passage starts to change. Because what was bright and colorful and loud is now gray and somber and quiet. The rejection of these Pharisees trying to shut down the disciples of Jesus is just one more example of what he has faced all along. See the one who is coming. And second, don't miss him. Don't miss him. He was riding, and now he is weeping. What happens as he draws near to Jerusalem? Verse 41, he draws near and he sees the city. It's like he crests the hill and starts coming down and the whole city is laid out before him. And what does he begin to do? He sobs. He wails. The term here is not just a little tear trickling down the cheek. It is a cry of lament. I mean, imagine this. Here's where the birthday party gets wrecked. Here's where the dinner goes off the rails. Because you can imagine the disciples all around Jesus shouting and praising God. The excitement is running high and then all of a sudden the donkey stops. And you can hear the people saying, wait, what's he doing? What's going on? The shouting and praising die down and all you can hear are the heaving sobs of the man on the colt. Why? Why is the king crying? Well, first, because he cares for the lost. He cares for the lost. Verse 42, as he looks down at the city, Jesus moans, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And he echoes this in verse 44 when he says, you did not know the time of your visitation. What is he saying? Do you remember the, the note or the theme of visitation through Luke? Back at the very beginning of the book, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, praises God for visiting and redeeming his people. Zechariah realized that the sunrise of God's mercy had visited his people in the baby Jesus. Salvation was coming through this child. God had come. And then later in Luke's gospel, when Jesus raises the widow's son from the dead, the crowd who's watching praises God and says, God has visited his people. God has shown up. So all through Jesus' ministry, people who were waiting for their king saw that God the Almighty had shown up in the works of Jesus. And yet here, 
the capital city of God's people, those who said they were waiting for the king, those who claimed that they were going to be ruled by the Prince of Peace, those were the very ones who had no clue who was entering their city. And you remember that Jesus has foretold time and time again that very soon, these rulers, these people in the city that's lying before him will reject him and will kill him. They will destroy the prince who brings peace for them. Now, why do humans need peace? What is peace? I think sometimes we, we minimize the meaning of peace to only this subjective feeling, this sense of calmness and restfulness. But that's not what we sang about in It Is Well With My Soul. Because the sea billows are rolling and Satan is assaulting and we are wearied and yet we say, it is well with my soul. How? What is peace? The biblical idea is deeper and richer than just a feeling of calm. In the beginning, God walked with his people in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve enjoyed perfect fellowship and unbroken communion with their maker. There was no fear. There was no hostility. There were no barriers to their beautiful interaction with God. And yet we know that in their disobedience, the first couple rejected God's goodness And they didn't believe that he was for them. They thought they needed something other than what what God said. And so through their rebellion, a great rift opened between God and humanity. And God had to drive his people out of the garden because they no longer could be in perfect fellowship with him. No longer could they survive in His holy presence. And so in His mercy, He casts them out of the garden to be protected from His holy presence. And yet they're no longer in His joyful presence. And so from that day, our human race has been doomed to wander apart from God. We cannot get back to Him We cannot enjoy blissful fellowship with Him. We cannot have a relationship with Him because our sins stand in the way. But just at the right time, God sent His Son and the eternal Word crossed the chasm and became one of us, taking on our flesh and walking in our dirt And he brought to us a great mending of the rift. He is the bridge that crosses the chasm. Jesus is peace. Because he is the one who unites hostile and distant humanity to God once again. 
But when humans reject Jesus, they reject peace. Therefore, there can be no peace on earth where there is rejection of Jesus. Only when Jesus reigns supreme over everything and his enemies are under his feet can peace permeate heaven and earth. And so Jesus weeps because his people, the citizens of his nation, are rejecting their only hope of peace with God. And centuries before, do you remember that an ancestor of Jesus, another king, went up the Mount of Olives weeping? David fled from Jerusalem as his son Absalom mounted a rebellion against him. And David went up the Mount of Olives weeping because his people had rejected him. And now, David's greater son comes down the Mount of Olives weeping because his people have rejected him. And why does Jesus say that they reject him? Why do they not know the things, the person who makes for peace? Look at verse 42. Because these things were hidden from their eyes. We saw this several weeks ago with the disciples. You remember when Jesus was telling them about his death and his resurrection and it And Luke tells us they did not understand because it was hidden from them. Once again, we see God's sovereign wisdom in hiding things from people so that his eternal plan will move forward. And this is a a mind-numbing paradox. It's a seeming contradiction that you have Divine sovereignty, a plan that God is working out, but you also have human responsibility and accountability for our decisions. God, in his power and in his wisdom, designed this is how things should play out. And he hides truth from people. He causes people to be blind so that Jesus will die to save people. I mean, who comes up with a plan like that? Peter picks up on this in the book of Acts in one of his sermons. Listen to what he says in Acts 13. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Jesus or understand the utterances of the prophets, what was written beforehand, they fulfilled those utterances by condemning Jesus. (laughs) So the Jews in Jerusalem fulfilled God's words written centuries before by rejecting Jesus. Now, our puny minds try to understand this, and we can't. And you might even want to push back on this whole idea of God having this kind of authority, but we can't argue with the divine. We can't argue with what he's saying, but we can agree that we are accountable for our responses to the one who comes. His sovereignty never eliminates our responsibility. 
For Jesus places the blame of rejection on the Jews, on the city before him, not on God. He weeps because he cares for the lost. And he weeps, secondly, because he declares judgment on the hostile. This is, these are terrible words that Jesus speaks next. He looks down on the city and he utters this terrible prediction. Jerusalem will be raised to the ground and the people in it will be slaughtered. Look at verse 43 and note this staccato of repeated things that he says. Your enemies will set up a barricade around you. They will surround you. They will hem you in on every side. They will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And that isn't just a pushing somebody over. That is a dashing somebody on the ground to break them into a pulp. And he says, finally, they will not leave one stone upon another in you. This is complete and utter devastation. The city and all of its inhabitants will be destroyed. And 35 years after Jesus sat on this cult looking at the city of Jerusalem, the Romans came and tore down the city. And it's almost as if Jesus is sitting here looking into the future and seeing the smoking ruin of Jerusalem littered with corpses. And did you notice the repeated emphasis on you in these verses? Fifteen times in four verses, Jesus says, you. You did not recognize me. You are responsible you did not receive me, so you will experience this judgment. And friends, I call to you today who have not believed in Jesus because he is the king who comes with power and with authority. He is the prince who brings peace with God. He is the only one who can bridge this terrible chasm which lies between you and the Almighty God. And He cares for sinners like you. You who have long rejected Him. You who have refused to receive Him. You who delay to welcome Him. You act like the city of Jerusalem, keeping Him at arm's length. But judgment is coming. And it may be that Jesus weeps over you. That he grieves over you because you will not receive him. Embrace the king who makes peace with God. Don't wait. Do it now. Jesus looks over the city and he foretells its fall. But then he enters the city and he shows us a transformation that he brings. 
See who's coming. Don't miss him. He changes everything. Verses 45 to 48. The scene shifts from the Mount of Olives, and now Jesus is inside, not just the city, but in the temple. Why does he go there directly? Why does he go to the temple first? Well, Luke puts an emphasis on the temple all through his gospel. You may remember at the very beginning, there's an old man and an old woman, Simeon and Anna, who are praying in the temple, waiting for God's Messiah to come. Years later, the preteen Jesus is sitting in the temple talking to the religious leaders until Joseph and Mary find him. Now, at the end of his life, in the last days of his ministry, Jesus will be often in the temple. Why? First, he's bringing the end of the old. What does he do when he goes in? Verse 45. He goes in and he begins to drive out those who sold. To drive out. Now, here again, you read through Scripture and we who are familiar with it can easily just paint over this as a nice little scene of Jesus shooing people out of the temple. This word, to drive out, is the same word used of his exorcisms of demons. So when he goes in the temple, he's saying, get out! And Luke doesn't tell us all the physical ways that he does that. Some of the other gospel writers tell us. But Jesus is coming in and he's telling them to get out. And why? What's the reason It's probably not because they were just selling animals. Because this area where these people were gathered was the court of the Gentiles. It wasn't restricted to Jewish men. It wasn't restricted to Jewish women. It was the place where anybody could come and mingle to pray to God. And so it would be a natural place for animals to be sold as sacrifices for people who wanted to offer them in the temple. The problem may not be that they're selling animals. The problem is found in what Jesus says. What are his words? Verse 46. It is written. Well, there's a clue. He's quoting the Old Testament. My house shall be a house of prayer. He's quoting Isaiah 56. And there Isaiah had said that God's house was a place of prayer for all the nations. So what are these sellers in the temple doing? They're, number one, they're probably cheating people and selling for more than they should be getting. So therefore, the result is the temple has become known as a black market instead of a place of prayer to God. No longer is it a place where someone who is seeking God can come and quietly meditate and seek to pray to Him. No, now there's business And there's cheating and all sorts of stuff going on. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. But what's the second thing Jesus says at the end of verse 46? But you have made it a den of robbers. And for this quotation, I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah. And I want you to see this and how it all fits together. Jeremiah 7. 
This is the period of Israel's history when the northern kingdom has already been taken into exile. The southern kingdom of Judah is under threat. And God has been confronting them through the prophets for all of their wickedness. And he comes to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, what does God say for him to do? Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, the temple, and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So what's going on? God tells Jeremiah, go stand at the front door. And as people are coming into church, as they're coming into the temple, start shouting. Don't come in here until you change the way you live. Because you're coming in here thinking, it's church, it's the temple, so I'm okay. Verse 5, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. He's saying, even now, if you will turn from your wickedness, I'll let you stay in your land. There's a threat against you, but if you repent, I'll let you stay. Verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, in the temple, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. What's the point? God is saying, you think the temple is your good luck charm. You live like you want out there, and then you come in and say, we'll find security in the temple of the Lord. We show up. We don't have to face any consequences from God. Well, guess what God says to that? Verse 12. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Do you remember what Shiloh was? It was the place where the tabernacle was and the Ark of the Covenant was in the time of Eli and Samuel. The Philistines came to attack the Israelites. And what do the two wicked sons of Eli do? They pull out their good luck charm. They pull out the Ark of the Covenant. And they carry it into battle and basically say, we can't be defeated because we got God on our side. And what happens? God says, you don't mess with me like that. And Israel is defeated. The Ark is captured by the Philistines and the two wicked sons of Eli are slaughtered. God says, 
I'm not a puppet on your chain. I don't play the good luck charm. So verse 13 of Jeremiah 7. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to this house, the temple, that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did at Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight. Through Jeremiah, God tells the Jews He's going to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And that's exactly what happened. They did not repent. They did not turn. The Babylonians sweep in. They level the city and they destroy the temple. And they take Israel and Judah into captivity. So when Jesus quotes Jeremiah, He's not just saying, that the temple has become a bad place again, even though he is saying that. He's saying the days of the temple are numbered, just like it happened before. He's saying that Jerusalem and the temple were decimated in Jeremiah's day. He just predicted on the Mount of Olives that that the city of Jerusalem is going to be decimated and now he's in the temple and he says the temple is going to be decimated. The old is coming to an end. Second, he introduces the new. Because what does he do? Verse 45, he enters the temple and verse 47, he was teaching daily in the temple. So what is Jesus doing? He is replacing the old with himself. He visits the temple. God has shown up in the building. So let's let's review a little bit here. What is the temple? It's the place to meet with God. It's the place to offer sacrifices. It's the place to get forgiveness. It's the place to have peace. And who is Jesus? He's the one through whom we meet God. He's the one who offers the perfect sacrifice. He is the one through whom we receive forgiveness. And he's the one through whom we get peace. Jesus is the temple. This is why Jesus said in John's gospel, when he cleansed the temple... And the people said, what are you doing? He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about himself. So Jesus is what the temple was supposed to be. The point was never a building. The point was you go to a building to have communion with God. So when God shows up in the building, you don't need the building anymore. You've got God himself. Jesus is the temple. And so the temple along with Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and it will pass away because the building isn't needed anymore when the true temple shows up in the building. Well, of course, the religious leaders aren't going to like this assault on the temple. So what do they start to do? They start to plan for Jesus' death. But at the same time, 
As Luke has shown us, there's always different responses to Jesus. At the same time, some are wanting to kill him. What does it say of all the people at the end of the passage? Look at that phrase. Verse, end of verse 48. All the people were hanging on his words. They couldn't get enough of him. And as it was in Jesus' day, so it is in ours. There are differing responses to Jesus. So to believers, let me say this. What is your response to Jesus? The King who comes to make peace with God for you. Is your reaction to him on a daily basis pretty tepid, pretty lukewarm? Is he merely an intellectual study for you? A passage like this does not allow us to stay kind of aloof even when we say we're following Jesus. The disciples in the passage were doing what as Jesus was riding on the donkey? They're rejoicing. They're praising God for what he has done through Jesus. So does that characterize your life if you are a believer? Are your conversations with other believers characterized by rejoicing and praising God for what he's done in you and in them? Are your interactions with unbelievers around us characterized with this joy and praise? And on another note, as we saw here at the very end, do you hang on Jesus' words? Do you long to hear from Him? To get really specific, when you come in on Sundays, every Lord's Day, are you wanting to hear from Jesus? How could you cultivate that? Maybe it's just going to bed a little bit earlier on Saturday night. Maybe it's shutting down the screens a little bit earlier. Maybe it's taking a little bit of time with your family to read the Word and to pray together before you go to bed to anticipate the words of Jesus which we will hear together. Maybe you need to get together with another brother or sister because your affections just, you, you don't feel like you hang on Jesus' words. Get together with another brother or sister, start to read the Word with them, and that will fire your heart as you start to get sharpened by another believer with you. Perhaps you need to read a little book on theology to get a sense of who this God is and what He's done for you. Embrace your King who has made peace with God for you. See the one who is coming. Don't miss Him. Don't miss Him. He changes everything. Let's pray. Father, take your truth, drive it deep into us by your Holy Spirit, and please give us minds and hearts which hang upon the words of Jesus, which treasure Him, which long to hear from Him. Give us hearts like this. Make us to be a church like this. And I pray for those here 
who have not yet embraced Jesus as the King who makes peace, please, draw them to yourself even now. Please, work in them to receive Him, to believe in Him, to follow Him. Do this work by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.